As I mentioned in my opening remarks, this Isaiah prophecy, which was quoted in Matthew's Gospel, gets read in the first reading. And so we need to take a look at that. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. The region of the Gentiles. A great darkness has covered the land, but your light will shine forth. So we need to figure out a little bit who these two people are. Naphtali and Zebulun. You might remember that Jacob had 12 sons from two wives and two concubines, but he accepted them all as his sons. Some of the names we know quite well, especially from our Jewish brothers and sisters. Names like Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and then the two from Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And there's one more that is fairly common, Dan. So that means that there's five names that are not so well known. Naphtali and Zebulun would be two. The other three would be Issachar, Asher, and Gad. How things worked out, they divided the, the land that they were given into 12 regions. But Levi was given just the money from the, from the temple. And so Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, got the two properties. So there would be 12 tribes. Well... Everything was fine for a while, and Isaiah will tell us that these ten tribes to the north began to be unfaithful to the Lord, began to follow their own will and their own civil connections, making treaties with different groups. And basically what happened was the Assyrians... Yes, Syria, the Assyrians, came and defeated them and drug them off to slavery. And we don't know what happened to them. And so you have the famous ten lost tribes of Israel. A few remain, but that's basically what happened there. The southern tribes also, a hundred years later, got defeated by the Babylonians, but they came back and rebuilt the temple, and that's what we know. So we're talking about two areas of land up north in what would be called Galilee that had been overtaken by the Gentiles because the Jews had been dispersed. They were lost. So that's the history that Matthew is telling us that that part of the, the world, a great light was shine, a people that walked in darkness 
that had been destroyed would see the light. And we know all about the Galilee area because that is where many of the apostles came from. You remember that Peter was recognizable in the praetorium before Pilate the night that Jesus was being questioned because of his accent. So they kind of talked funny. So that's Galilee. But they saw the light. That is so important. Then Jesus goes on and Matthew has him choosing these apostles. So he has groups of brothers, Peter and Andrew. They were fishermen. They left their boats and followed him. And then the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he would eventually add eight more to make the 12 apostles to replace the 12 tribes. That's very important in our numeric understanding of theology. That is our God, how he works. So, a couple things for us. First of all, do you realize that the light is shining brightly? It is the light of Christ. And whatever else might be happening out there, we reflect that light to our world whether it's the terrorism, whether it's the issues throughout our world with immigration and cartels, whether it's our own country and our issues, whether it's in the church and our issues with sexual scandals and such, the light is brighter than any of that. And the second thing is that you and I have been called. So the subsequent question is, how easy is it for you to leave what you are doing to follow the Lord or to put him as a priority? Not that those things are bad. They are not. And one can certainly be a Christian fisherman, I suspect. But how many things do we let get in the way between us and following the Lord? So maybe we need to recommit ourselves to cleaning up our commitment to follow him more dearly, to follow him more clearly. The final thing from the second reading, which follows a different structure, but it talks about divisions, saying that some folks follow Apollo, some folks follow Paul, some folks follow Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. And, of course, some folks follow Christ. Maybe it's a reminder to us whom are we listening to? What do we read? Or do we read anything? Do we seek what the church is teaching? What Pope Francis is saying? What the American bishops 
are trying to say, what the scriptures say, what the catechisms say, whatever. Do we seek the good things that are there to give us direction? You see, I think you would agree our society is over here somewhere. You and I are called to be over here to follow a deeper call, one of justice and respect for all peoples, for life, for all peoples. This sense of a higher calling and not to follow things which might be divisive, which might be selfish, which might be just a little bit anti-charity, where there's a certain, maybe not so much hate, but a certain dis despising of the way other people think. That's certainly big in our politics, but it's also big in the church. There are folks who think that some things are not proper, that the Pope is wrong. Well, I don't think so. Anyway, one needs to do a lot of study before coming to such a conclusion. But there are people out there who say such things. I was talking to a young man a week ago in Tucson at the Southwest Liturgical Conference, and one of his concerns was he was reading all these blogs that were not very happy with Pope Francis, and he seemed to like Pope Francis. And I said, follow Pope Francis and figure out why he says what he says and why the scriptures say what they say. The catechism says what it says. That, I think, is what we're called to do. Not to be divisive, but to be unifying. So, let us let our light shine in the darkness of our world. Let us follow the Lord and put away whatever obstacles that might be there. And let us seek the whole picture to read and study correctly what it is the church teaches. I think that 